Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Stefan Guillenet. Stefan specializes in the neuroscience of obesity and is an advocate for information accuracy in health communication. He received a bachelor's in biochemistry from the University of Virginia and a PhD in neuroscience from the University of Washington, where he remained as a postdoctoral fellow studying the neuroscience of obesity. His scientific publications have been cited more than 4,000 times by his peers. His book, The Hungry Brain, was named one of the best books of the year by Publishers Weekly and called Essential by the New York Times Book Review. Stefan is the founder and director of Red Pen Reviews, which publishes the most informative, consistent, and unbiased health and nutrition book reviews available. In the episode, Stefan shares why he's changed his mind about saturated fat, how a diet higher in fiber can help with weight loss, weight loss and maintenance myths he'd love to get busted once and for all, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, Dry Farm Wines. Did you know that alcohol manufacturers aren't required to post ingredients or nutrition facts on their bottles? That's how they're able to sneak sugar and other additives into their products. Fortunately, Dry Farm Wines has come up with a solution. Their natural wines are lab tested to ensure they're sugar free, lower in sulfites and alcohol, and also free from other industrial additives. Since I've grown accustomed to drinking natural wines, even the top-rated, expensive, conventional wines can give me headaches and just make me feel overall kind of gross. If you've never tried Dry Farm Wines, you're going to be immediately hooked by the flavor and quality of their products, as well as their top-notch customer service. To get a bottle of Dry Farm Wines for just a penny, visit dryfarmwines.com slash thehealthinvestment or click through the link in the show notes. And one more thing, if you've struggled to lose weight and keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike one-size-fits-all, restrictive, quick-fix diets that only provide short-term results, I help my clients master the skills needed to lose 5, 10, or even 50-plus pounds permanently, feel completely in control of cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and create a personalized nutrition plan so they can stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. All right, it's time to hear from Stefan. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. 
Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Stefan. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Hi, Brooke. Thanks for having me. I've followed your work for a long time and your Twitter, if I'm sure we'll share all of your social handles at the end, but if anyone's on Twitter, you're one of the really good ones to follow, I think, because I learn from you almost every day. You, you post pretty frequently, right? Yeah, I would say I post something on most days. Yeah, I feel like you do. <laughs> so even if you don't, it appears that you do. Um, but I would love if you could share what led you to devote your life to investigating specifically the neuroscience of eating behavior in obesity? Yeah, so I've always been interested in science from a young age, and the brain was a particularly attractive topic because it's perhaps the most complex object in the known universe, and it's also the thing that makes us who we are. And Thirdly, it's also one of the great remaining scientific frontiers. Because it's so complex, there's a lot we don't know about it. And so that's an exciting thing for someone who's interested in science. So um, that's kind of what got me interested in the brain. And I've also always been interested in health, fitness, nutrition. And so the neuroscience of obesity is kind of where those two things intersect. And... Um, so I did my PhD in neuroscience and then did a postdoc in studying the uh, neuroscience of obesity at the University of Washington and um, just learned a lot of things that I felt weren't really be uh, being adequately translated to the public. Mm. And, uh, you know, being a part of the health and nutrition sphere, I could see that there was a lot of information uh, being shared that was not really uh, very consistent with what we were discovering scientifically about uh, the brain and obesity. And so I uh, decided to get into public communication about it as well. And that culminated in writing my book, The Hungry Brain, as well as ongoing public communication on platforms like Twitter and writing articles for various outlets and doing interviews like these. Awesome. Uh, so I mentioned your Twitter, you did as well. And that's when it really sparked for me to have you on because you posted a thread that began back in my early blogging days. One of my soapbox issues was that dietary saturated fat is probably harmless. My views on that have evolved over the years and it's time for me to share the update which I would love for you to share with us here today, because I think if you are somebody who's just following a bunch of people on social media or reading news headlines, you're likely very confused on like, should I be eating saturated fat? A lot of people in the keto community are acting like it's the best thing and you should be putting fat in everything. And then other people are saying, stay back, like stay away from it, avoid increased consumption. Um, so I'd love if you could first define what is saturated fat and some of the common foods that are high in saturated fat, and then we can go from there. Yeah. So um, I'd like to just take a little step back even further than that, if I may. Um, Great. Yeah. 
I just want to first emphasize that cardiovascular disease is not a core area of expertise for me. So, you know, take that um, how you will. The second part um, I want to say is just kind of a meta point that I think it's very important for people to be able to change their minds. And, um, you know, this is uh, an example of me doing that. And I think that... um, I uh, really try to encourage my own ability to change my mind when either I gain a better understanding of the evidence or the evidence changes. And I think um, another thing I'll say about that is I think I can in part credit my audience for that because my perception is that I have an audience that just wants accurate information. And therefore, if you know I change my mind, then that's okay. You know, if I update based on new information, then that is something that my audience would like to know about instead of me just stubbornly clinging to the beliefs that I formerly held. So mm-hmm. having an audience that uh, is supportive of, you know, me being able to change my mind instead of presenting, you know, instead of wanting to me to be like the, you know, strong man who never changes his mind Uh, I think that's a really, I think that's an important part to being able to do something like that. Um, So those are a couple of of high level points that I wanted to make. So uh, you asked me, what are some common food sources? What is saturated fat and what are common food sources of it? Is that correct? Yeah, just to start very basic so that everybody's on the same page. Yeah, so saturated fat is... uh, it's a certain type of fatty acid, which is uh, a lipid, non-water soluble molecule. And um, the saturated fat is one in which the fatty acid chain is uh, has as many hydrogen atoms as it can hold. So it's the straight fatty acid, it's a straight carbon chain that is fully saturated with hydrogens. It has as many hydrogens as it can hold. Um, unsaturated fat in contrast are missing some hydrogens and that causes them to kink. So instead of being these straight fatty acids, they are bent in one place for monounsaturated or two or more places for, for polyunsaturated and saturated fats, uh, are mostly found in animal foods, not exclusively, but most of the saturated fat we eat is from animal foods. So, um, particularly fats that come from mammals like beef fat and pork fat, dairy fat. Um, and there are smaller amounts of saturated fats in, uh, in fats from other animals like chicken, uh, turkey, fish, eggs. Um, also, another major source of saturated fat is tropical fats like coconut, fat and, um, and palm oil. Mm. So, um, coconut in particular is very, very high in, in saturated fat. And so, uh, yeah, so those are, those are the most common dietary sources of saturated fat. And that is, uh, the concept of, of what they are. And you can have a sense of how saturated a fat is by how solid it is at room temperature. So, Hmm. Fats that are low in saturated fat 
tend to be liquid at room temperature because all those kinks in the fatty acid chains means that they don't pack together very tightly. So they don't solidify at room temperature. Um, so things like olive oil and soybean oil uh, will be liquids at room temperature, whether, whereas something like coconut oil or butter or beef fat will be solid or semi-solid at room temperature. Hmm. I love that. That's a cool, I love helpful little tips like that, that we can all just kind of visualize our kitchens then and what you're talking about. So what did you previously believe to be true about saturated fat? And then now in light of new research or your new understanding, what do you believe currently? Yeah. So what I used to believe is that saturated fat is basically harmless, that, um, if you eat more of it, your cardiovascular risk is not going to be elevated relative to eating less of it. And I won't get into much detail, but I will say that there is evidence supporting that position. And that is the evidence that led me to that conclusion. Um, for example, if you just look in observational studies, studies that say, how much saturated fat do people eat and how many heart attacks do they have? What you see is that there's typically little or no correlation between saturated fat consumption and heart attack risk in studies like that. And you can look across a number of studies. You can take the findings and stick them all together into a meta study. And that's the finding you get that there's not much relationship between intake and cardiovascular risk. Um, so that was the position that I formally held and that evidence has not gone away. Um, it's just that I'm looking at it in a different way and also looking at uh, other types of evidence. Mm. And then now, how have you refined that view? Yeah. So I think essentially there are a few different things that have come together to lead me to this conclusion. But uh, now what I think is that saturated fat is uh, at least certain types of saturated fat are harmful to health, um, particularly cardiovascular health. And it's a little more complicated, I think, than just saying saturated fat is bad. Um, there are a couple of different considerations here. One of them is the type of saturated fat. So certain types of dairy like cheese and milk and cream don't seem to affect blood lipids as much in the same way that's harmful to health as other types of saturated fat, like the fat on beef and pork and butter, which do seem to affect blood lipids in a way that should increase cardiovascular risk. So it's, and I think that's part of what explains why people who eat more saturated fat in these studies don't necessarily have higher risk. It's because Saturated fat is kind of a diverse uh, hodgepodge of things. It's not all the same. So when you lump it all together, you don't necessarily see a consistent effect. Um, <clears throat> but you do see a consistent effect on blood lipids of those fats that I just said. So, and when I say blood lipids, I'm talking about particularly LDL cholesterol, which is the quote unquote bad cholesterol. So the fat in beef, the fat in pork, um, the fat in butter and the fat in tropical oils like coconut oil and, and palm oil, those things clearly elevate LDL cholesterol. So, and, and I think one of the things that we've learned 
over the years, or I should say that has really gotten a lot stronger over the years is that anything that changes LDL cholesterol seems to change cardiovascular risk. And I mean, we knew LDL was important and that was something I always acknowledged, but the evidence has just gotten so strong um, as a result of some of the genetic studies that are coming out and some of the other studies, the evidence is just so strong now and so kind of um, so broad in the sense that many different things, many different paths to altering LDL seem to have the same impact on risk. And so yeah. LDL is just such a central um, such a central influence on cardiovascular disease that I think that we should expect that the things that change it are going to change cardiovascular risk. And so that's, that's kind of the lens that I'm looking at this through now. Um, and because of that, I think that, you know, if you're concerned about cardiovascular risk, you should avoid these, avoid eating large amounts of these fats that increase LDL cholesterol. And again, this is, you know, this is measurable. You can go to the doctor and you can ask them to measure your blood lipids and you can see whether there's a problem with your current diet or you can make a change and go back and measure it again and see how it impacted your blood lipids. So, mm -hmm. you know, if your blood lipids are in a healthy range, maybe there's not a problem with your diet in this regard. If they're elevated, maybe it's time to think about making a change and seeing, you know, going back and seeing how it changes things in your blood lipids. Yeah. I was going to ask, and you kind of touched on it there. Is it really, I mean, I'm sure it's obviously individualized for everybody, but is it kind of a dose makes the poison type of thing where if the majority of the time you're eating leaner cuts of meat, using olive oil, that type of thing, and then occasionally having the red meat and the butter um, does that seem to have not as bad of an effect on LDL or yeah, absolutely. for most people? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, these things change, the, the, the impact of these fats uh, occurs over a time scale of a couple of weeks. So mm -hmm. you're, you know, if you start, e if you start eating a diet that is lower in saturated fat now, lower in the types of saturated fat that increase your lipids, Within like three weeks, you are you will already be experiencing the maximum benefit of that diet in in terms of where your blood lipids are. Um, wow. So yeah, so it's not like this poison that you know you eat it once and it kills your <laughs> arteries forever. You can absolutely make changes very rapidly to your blood lipid levels, and the amount of damage that you accumulate to your cardiovascular system is cumulative over time. And so it, it's like uh, you can think about it, how to, how to put this, um, like it's cumulative over, over time. So if you are, um, if you have very high lip lipid levels now, um, and then you go down to low lipid levels, low LDL levels, let's say that could be equivalent to having slightly elevated levels for, for many years. It's kind of like mm. the cumulative area under the curve, if that makes sense. Yeah. That, that, that matters. So yeah, absolutely. If, you know, if you reduce consumption of those fats halfway, 
you get more benefit than if you didn't reduce it at all. If you reduce it even more, you probably get even more benefit in terms of cardiovascular protection. And that protection will start within, you know, weeks of when you make those changes. Another thing I want to, I want to emphasize that I forgot to say earlier is part of it depends on what you're eating instead of the saturated fat. Mm. So if you're substituting, um, if you're getting rid of those saturated fats and eating refined carbohydrates, like refined Mm -hmm. starches and sugars instead, that's not necessarily going to be very beneficial for you cardiovascular, for your cardiovascular health. If you're replacing those things with unrefined carbohydrate or with unsaturated oils like olive oil or uh, or seed vegetable oils, things like that, then you will achieve uh, probably a benefit. So um, what you are replacing it with makes a big difference as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What about in terms, you said dairy maybe isn't as much of a concern, cheese, milk, yogurt. Is there still some recommendation to get lower fat varieties of those most of the time? So, yeah, this is really, I would say, still an open question in nutrition research, whether we should be eating low-fat dairy. I know it's part of typical recommendations um, to eat low-fat dairy. However, Eating higher fat dairy, and and by the way, again, I'm excluding butter from this because butter definitely increases your bad blood lipids. But for some reason, when you have the fat distributed throughout the food, like in cheese or cream or milk, it doesn't have the same effect on blood lipids. And Mm. this has been shown over and over and over again in well-controlled studies. So it's pretty pretty solid at this point that there is actually a difference even per unit fat. There's a difference between butter and cream difference between butter and milk and cheese. Um, so, um, that said, yeah, so there's not really a big rationale. There's not really a major rationale as far as I can tell to eat lower fat dairy in terms of cardiovascular risk. Um, that said, I do think that those higher fat types of dairy are probably not so great for your waistline. Mm-hmm. I can't say that with much confidence either. I don't think the evidence is super strong there, but that is my belief based on current evidence that it's probably not so great for your waistline compared to lower fat dairy. So mm-hmm. personally, I was eating whole milk dairy and I switched back to 2% um, after seeing some evidence suggesting that the whole milk is more fattening. Right. I did the same actually. And I'm actually loving it because I kind of prefer the taste in my coffee is really where I use it. Oh, really? Oh man. Taste of 2%. So (laughs) for me, as far as the taste, the fattier, the better. I mean, I could just, Oh really? Oh Yeah. I could so drink. not as exciting as a change for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not exciting at all, but it's fine. I don't mind the 2%, but yeah, I would definitely prefer the, the whole milk Yeah, personally. On special occasions, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah. Treat here and there. I so respect the fact that you came out on Twitter because I don't, if people aren't listening, the Twitter sphere that you're in with PhDs and MDs, I mean, 
it can get really intense in terms of the back and forths and all of the research shared. And I love to go to Twitter to just learn from all of you guys. Um, but I'm sure that took like guts to come out and say something I formerly believed I actually have changed my mind about. And I respected that so much and actually put more faith in you and your beliefs and your research, because I just think it makes complete sense that as we get new evolving evidence, our opinions should be changing about things. And I don't ever want to be the type of person myself where I've attached myself to a dogma of nutrition. And it's like, this is what I am hanging my hat on. And I'm going to believe this forever. And I'm going to tell everybody this way of eating, even if new research proves me wrong. Um, So I really, really respect that. And I'm glad that it seems like for the most part, it was well received by your audience. Yeah, people loved it. So that's it's like, great. I, I mean, there's it really like there's nothing for me to lose by, you know, publicly changing my mind like that. People love it. So yeah, like, people do love it. Only, and I hope it is. Yeah. The only thing that I could lose would be like some, you know, pride or like ego thing. But I just that's just not important to me. And yeah. And I think um I personally believe that it is a key mark of rationality to be able to change your mind. And if you can't do that, there's a problem with how you're, with how you're thinking. Right. And, I agree. And so like, if I could not do that, I don't think I could respect myself. Um, and, and then being able to come out and, and say it again, people loved it. So the only like possible downside was a hit to my ego. And I just don't, think that is important which takes a special person again especially like in the public eye because I think a lot of people would not do or feel the same way in terms of any bash to their ego I think I wish more people would do what you did and I'm sure there are so many PhDs and MDs sitting on new research that they have changed their mind about things and they're now eating differently but they're not coming out and saying it. And I wish there was just more, or maybe you see, maybe there is more of an open discussion and you feel like you can change your mind. I mean, what is, do you feel like the majority of people admit that or no? Um, I think most people have a hard time admitting when they change a belief that they formally advocated for. Um, Yeah, I think there's certainly some inertia that I think would be the case for, for most people. Um, and you see this everywhere. Like it's, you definitely see it in popular nutrition advocates, you know, people who have staked their reputation on a particular position, especially people who have like one angle that is their angle. They're not Mm going to change that angle because then they have nothing. So, or at least maybe that's how they perceive the situation. Yeah. Um, and then, And then, but unfortunately it happens to scientists too. So, you know, you have somebody who they have a particular hypothesis and maybe, maybe it's a decent hypothesis. doesn't have to be a crackpot idea. Maybe it's a decent idea and it's just, you know, over time doesn't get supported very well and they just can't let go of it because that is what their reputation is attached to, their ego is attached to, their grant funding is attached to. And, uh, they just kind of can't see a path without it on some kind of like 
you know, personal level. Uh, yeah, so I, th I think it is, it's really common and it's a really big problem for the advancement of, of human knowledge. But, you know, it's not like impossible. There are people who do change their minds regularly. And I think, you know, one thing that I'm heartened to see in my corner of the nutrition world is how much that's encouraged. Mm. Again, again, like, you know, as I said before, I really feel grateful to have an audience that, that values that, that feels the same way as I do, that we're all striving toward better information and that, um, changing your mind is, is a good thing if the information changes and a sign that a person is, you know, being rational. Yeah. Are there any other views that have evolved over your course of research that maybe not as big as that one, or maybe as big that you could share with us? Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, there, so there are a few things I could cite. Um, there are two, there's two posts on my website, stephangna.com, uh, titled two things that I changed my mind about. So yeah. that's, um, those are two things that I changed my mind about. Um, one of them is, uh, relates to the healthfulness of butter and is kind of ties into what we've been talking about today. The other one, um, is about a compound called phytic acid. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, somewhat. Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll explain to make sure everybody's yeah. along for the ride. Um, phytic acid is a compound that's found, uh, mostly in seeds it's found in a, a variety excuse me a variety of plants but especially seeds like grains and beans and nuts and uh it's a naturally produced compound that binds to minerals and it causes you to not absorb as many of the minerals in your food so certain types of minerals when you eat foods that are higher in phytic acid a portion of those minerals will not be absorbed into your body they will just go out into the toilet and uh, that's because it binds binds to those minerals, doesn't let you absorb them in your gut, and they just go away. Okay. Um, and it can be a problem in some diets. So if you have a diet that is very heavily based on grains and beans, like a lot of low-income people do in many parts of the world, uh, that the fact that it is binding minerals and not letting you absorb them can actually create deficiencies. Um, and that can be a real problem nutritionally. Um, and so a lot of cultures around the world have developed these methods for reducing phytic acid concentrations. Of course, they don't necessarily know what phytic acid is, but they've developed over, you know, hundreds and thousands of years, they've developed ways of preparing their food that makes them healthier. Um, and so things like fermenting, um, like, for example, sourdough fermentation of bread and all kinds of different fermentation uh, strategies and soaking and all kinds of different things that have de been developed in many different cultures that reduce phytic acid levels in these types of foods. Um, and so I used to think that this was important for someone in even in an affluent context like the U.S. that we should be really careful about how we eat grains and beans to reduce the phytic acid so we can absorb these minerals. Um, but I just don't, 
like the, I changed my mind about that because our diets are not like someone who is living on 50 cents a day in rural Uganda. You know, like we eat diets that are much more affluent and much more diverse and we don't need to worry as much about those minerals. Like if you're worried about those minerals, just eat some more vegetables and meat or whatever, you know, it is in your diet that, that you prefer to eat. Um, I, I just don't think that phytic acid is that much of a concern with foods like whole grains and beans. I think those are the types of foods we should probably be eating more of um, mm. for various reasons. And the phytic acid is is just not really that much of a concern in the context of a diverse affluent diet. Mm. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I'd mm -hmm. love to know kind of along the same lines, are there any big weight loss or weight maintenance myths currently circulating that you'd love to bust? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I'll, I'll, let's talk about a couple of them. So one that I think is really, that I hear a lot that's really common, but that is totally wrong is that if you just eat a small amount less every day, so you cut back on your food intake by let's say like a slice of toast a day that you will steadily and gradually lose weight. And over the course of however many years you'll lose like 50 pounds, mm. um, just by cutting a slice of toast out of your diet every day. And the idea is there's 90 calories in a slice of toast. There's 3,500 calories in a pound of body fat. So, like every month or so you would be losing a pound of body fat by adding up the number of calories in that slice of bread. Um, the problem is it doesn't work like that at all. So as you lose weight, your body, your calorie requirements go down gradually because your body's smaller. So it doesn't require as many calories anymore. And then what happens is the gap between the number of calories that you're eating and the number of calories that your body requires narrows and narrows and narrows until there is no gap and then your weight stabilizes. And that happens over a period, very slowly over a period of two or three years, but most of it happens over the first year or so. And basically, instead of just kind of continually and slowly losing tens of pounds, you will lose a couple pounds and then stabilize at that lower weight, even if you continue to eat that one slice of bread fewer per day. The truth is that the difference in calorie intake between a person who has obesity and a person who does not have obesity is something like 25%. Mm. And, if you, and if that person with obesity wants to get down to where the person without obesity is, they have to cut back their calorie intake by about that much. And that's a lot, you know, it's, and let, let me rephrase that. It's not like 25% is not like, I don't know. I think some people have this idea that like people with obesity, just like, you know, eat giant platefuls of food, you know, multiple more than a lean person would. That's not really what it's like. You might not even notice a 25% difference 
in the amount of food on somebody's plate. It's not a huge amount, but it's a lot more than a slice of toast a day. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 we're talking about like, uh, 700 calories or something. So, um, let me see, let me make sure that is right. Yeah. Maybe a little less, maybe a little less than that. And of course it depends on whether you're a man or a woman. Men have greater calorie needs, but, uh, something like that. So we're, we're talking about hundreds of calories a day. Um, if you want to lose weight and stabilize at a weight that is substantially lower than where you are, and you're starting from a place of having obesity. Um, so I'm sorry if that sounds discouraging to some people. <laughs> I know that it probably does, but I mean, you gotta, you, you need to have the truth because yeah. if you don't have the truth and you try something that is, if you implement a strategy that's incorrect, then obviously it's not going to work. So at a minimum, you have to at least have the truth when you're trying to, to make a change. So that's one thing. Um, a second myth, uh, you know, I see this, I, I, I mentioned this on Twitter recently. I see this idea a lot that eating carbohydrate blocks fat burning, that as long as we're eating carbs, we're not burning fat. And that's actually true. It's just misleading because mm-hmm. the people say that to imply that you can only lose fat by cutting back on carbohydrate. And that's actually not true. Basically, the what happens is your body burns the thing that you eat. So if you eat carbs, your body's going to burn carbs. If you eat fat, your body's going to burn fat. But the amount of fat in your body at the end of the day is determined by whether you're eating more or fewer calories than what your body needs. So it doesn't actually matter whether you're eating fat or carbs in terms of net loss of body fat. Hmm. So that, that is a fact that is true, but misleading. So no need to fear carbs as some people are out there. I don't, yeah. I mean, I, here's the thing. I, some people do really well with carb restriction. I'm not here to criticize carb restriction. I think it can be a useful approach, um, for weight loss and for diabetes management. I support it. Um, but I just don't think it's necessary to lose weight. Some people would think or argue, um, and this view has been publicly advocated for by pretty high profile figures that you have to cut carbohydrate to lose weight, that you literally cannot lose body fat by unless you cut carbohydrate. And that is not true. Um, you can cut calories either via fat or carbohydrate and or both and lose body fat. However, whichever, you know, those strategies may not be equally effective or sustainable for every individual. So some people might do better with low carb. Some people might do better with low fat, but either strategy can work. Mm -hmm. Just what works for you is best to figure out because then that'll be sustainable long-term. Yeah. And, and I also want to specify, you know, a diet does not have to involve 
carbohydrate or fat restriction, at least, you know, not deliberate restriction. There are many different ways of losing weight. Uh, and that's two of them. Those are two popular ways, but there are many different ways. Right. Some people, um, again, going back to Twitter, like to just blame sugar for the state we're in, in terms of obesity and, you know, the epidemic, if you will, in this country. Where do you stand on sugar? Um, I think it's part of the problem. I think sugar is fattening, um, particularly in the form of sugar-sweetened beverages uh, you know, this is something you can even see in, in rodents. If you give them access to sugar water instead of regular water, they will get fatter. They love the stuff and they'll get fatter. Um, however, interestingly, if you put sugar into their food, so solid sugar, they, that actually is not very fattening at all in rodents. So they will, they'll get fat on liquid sugar, but not solid sugar. And this actually dovetails really, really well with the human evidence. There's not really much correlation between overall sugar intake or solid sugar intake and body fatness in humans. Where you do see a correlation is with sugar-sweetened beverages. And so uh, it may be that it's the same in humans as in rodents, that really the solid sugars are not as fattening. But I, I do think, I mean, sugar, you know, it's one of these empty calories that's used to make stuff that's calorie dense and tastes good. So, you know, like cakes, cookies, um, all the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those are fattening foods, right? And I would have to think that sugar is part of the reason why they're fattening. Like if suddenly we deleted sugar out of all those things, we probably wouldn't eat them as much. Um, so, yeah, but I, you know, there's this idea that sugar is like the thing that is the cause of obesity and diabetes and cardiovascular disease and every other health problem. And I'm not even, I'm not even straw manning at all. This is, this exactly what I just said has very explicitly been argued uh, by some pretty high profile people, including Gary Taubes, for example. Um, and the evidence is just really does not support that concept. The, the path to obesity via diet is a lot more complicated than, than just sugar. And if we go back to the, the rodent studies I was talking about, of course, rodents are an important model of uh, diet-induced obesity that we use in, for scientific research. And in many ways, they react the same as humans to diet. You can do, you can modify their diet in different, in many different ways, and they often react the same as humans in terms of their body fatness. And uh, what we see in rodents is that the most fattening macronutrient, the macronutrients are carbs, fat, and protein, is fat, not carbohydrate. Mm. Dietary fat is the most fattening macronutrient in rodent models of obesity no question. And I think it's like unpopular right now to suggest that fat contributes to obesity in humans. Like that's out of, out of fashion. Um, <laughs> but I think it's still true. I don't know if it's quite as like potent or dominant as it is in, in rodents. I don't know that that's necessarily true in humans, but I think it does contribute, especially added fats 
the ones where you you know you take extract the fat out of things and concentrate it like oils and butter and lard um i think those things are fattening and you see those things rising in the american diet in correlation with the obesity epidemic so um yeah and you know we have there are tons of studies in humans too where they manipulate carbohydrate intake, they manipulate sugar intake, they manipulate fat intake, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If sugar was this like standout factor that was more important than everything else, we would have known it a long time ago. It just simply is not. It is part of a more complex landscape that is contributing to obesity. Right. Since you are one of the top experts in terms of the neuroscience of eating behavior and obesity, I'd love to know, I don't, I hope this isn't too reductionist, but if you have kind of a favorite hack, if you will, to make weight loss or maintenance easier in terms of, is there a type of brain hack that you wish everybody knew about, or just something we can all do to make it a tad bit less difficult yeah, sure. I'll I'll give you one. I'll I'll kind of frame it in the neuroscience perspective to make it sound cool. Okay, oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's do that. Um so a thing that a lot of people don't know about uh satiety or fullness is that that is a sensation that is generated in the brain. We kind of I think intuitively we think of satiety or fullness as our stomach is full, like it's physically full, there's no more room, and that's why we want to stop eating. But actually, there's tons of room still in your stomach, usually. Most people still have tons of room left in their stomachs at the point at which they feel full. What that is, is it's a signal in your brain. Your brain has basically decided that you have had enough based on your brain's perception of what your needs are, and then it just says, we're done. You've had enough. Okay. You're gonna. I'm gonna make you feel full now. I'm gonna cause you to lose interest in eating further food, and then you know you're gonna stop eating. So, uh, satiety is a sensation that is generated in the brain, and it is generated based on signals, based in large part on signals that are that ascend from your digestive tract. So from your mouth, from your stomach, stretch receptors that detect how much, how full your stomach is, nutrient receptors in your small intestine that tell your brain what the nutrients are and what you ate, the fat and the protein, the carbs, all that stuff goes up your vagus nerve, up to your brainstem, and then that information goes all over to different parts of your brain. And um, one interesting thing is that that perception of satiety is not very tightly linked to the number of calories that you eat. So depending on what types of foods you're eating, you can feel more full for fewer calories. And this has been characterized pretty well. And what the studies show is that some of the factors that have a big impact on satiety per calorie are the calorie density or energy density of the food in other words, how many calories are there per gram? So foods that have more water content and more fiber have a lower energy density and they're more filling per calorie. So you can think about it as per calorie, they take up more space in your stomach 
That's one way to think about it. So like just to give you a contrast, um, oatmeal is mostly water that has much more satiety per calorie than crackers, which have a lot less water in them. So crackers are much more concentrated in calories. You eat the same number of calories as that bowl of oatmeal. It's going to take up like a quarter of the space in your stomach that the oatmeal did. And that causes you to feel correspondingly less full when you eat the crackers. So calorie density is a big one. Um, fiber content matters. Higher fiber makes you feel more full per calorie. So if you're eating those more fibrous whole grains, beans, vegetables, fruit, you will experience more fullness per calorie. Protein makes you feel more full per calorie. I think most people recognize this, that meats, uh, eggs, tofu, things, beans, things like that, um, deliver a lot of satiety, particularly the leaner ones per unit calorie or more filling. And, uh, and finally palatability. So things that taste super, super good are not as filling as per calorie. So if you're digging into like your favorite pizza or ice cream or whatever it is, the way I like to think about it is your brain just kind of turns off your fullness switch. Cause intuitively the, the fact that this is very tasty to you. That mean that's a signal that intuitively your brain places a very high value on that food. And so your brain, the way I think about it is your brain is saying, Hey, this is an awesome food. I'm going to kind of take off the brakes a little bit so you can eat some more of it. Um, so what this means is that if you eat foods that are lower in calorie density, higher in fiber, higher in protein, and not extremely high in palatability, you can actually sit down to a meal and eat until, until you feel full, but you will have eaten many fewer calories than if you were eating a meal with the opposite properties. And I think it's telling that a lot that if foods with the opposite properties, so calorie dense, highly palatable, low in fiber, low in protein, those are foods that we kind of intuitively recognize as fattening. So that covers things like cookies and pizza, cake and fries, ice cream, that sort of thing. Wow, that's really fascinating. And I love the way you explained that. I haven't heard anybody explain it in that exact way. So thank you for sharing that. I ask each of my guests a final question, which is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Yeah. So, I mean, health is very much an investment. It's something that you cumulatively invest in over the course of your, your life. And if you do that, it makes a huge difference to how you live in your aging years. And uh, that's kind of how I see it is how am I going to be when I'm older, when I'm 60, 70, 80 years old, am I still going to be able to do the things I want to do? Will I still be able to hike? Will I still be able to garden? Will I be able to play with my grandkids, ride my bike? Will I feel good? Will I have mental energy and cognitive abilities to do the things that I want to do? Will my senses be working well? Um, that's kind of That's kind of how I see it. Yeah, I love that. The idea of kind of health span versus just lifespan. 
That's what's more important to me. Yeah. Health span. Yeah, for sure. Me too. And I'm sure a lot of listeners as well. If someone's interested in following and finding you outside of this podcast, can you share your website and handles with us and your book? Yeah, my book is called The Hungry Brain. It's a general audience book. It was not written just for scientists or nutrition professionals. It's a general audience book. Um, And it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, any major bookseller in the U.S. and in most English-speaking countries. My website is stephanguionet.com. That is, um, I, I don't post there very often anymore, but there's a fair amount of material from previous posting that I did. My Twitter handle is S-G-U-Y-E-N-E-T. And I post there on most days. I post there pretty regularly. Yeah, awesome. I'll link all of those things up in the show notes for easy clickability. And I just want to thank you again so, so much. This is just a jam-packed episode. I learned a lot myself, and I'm just grateful that you shared your time with us. Okay, thanks, Brooke. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.